Yeah. Isn't that incredible, man? Uh, that was filmed just a few weeks ago, and they sent it over uh, via internet. It's amazing that they can do that. And that was a deal he was served. He was just there, and he's back now, uh, just giving an update on our churches. And that's why we wanted to show that to you. Uh, especially if you're new, you may not know, but our vision is to multiply. We're trying to multiply at every level from disciples, leaders, campuses, and churches. And that exists all over the world, literally, in our churches in Kenya. And then there's been just some incredibly generous people in our church that have also stepped up and paid for those water wells to be dug. Uh, because we go into the villages, we feed people, they trust Christ, we build a church, and then the church really becomes like the center of the entire community. And so putting a well there is a huge huge need that gets met. And that is happening literally like you saw because of your generosity as a church. And so we always want to celebrate those things that God is doing and let you be reminded. It's always helpful for me to be reminded as well that our God is a global God. He is literally working all over the world. And if we're not careful, we can just get so pessimistic about all the negative things that are happening all over the world and completely miss all the good things, all the amazing things that God is doing literally all over the world. And so we want to celebrate that as always. Now, before we jump into our message, let me pray. We're going to ask God to bless our time together. All right? Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for um, what we just celebrated, the fact that you're literally working on the other side of the globe, and people are coming to know you. People are being served, and churches are being planted. And God, what a privilege and honor it is to be a part of a local church that has a global impact. And so God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessing that you have been to Revolution Church and so that we can then in turn be a blessing to others. And God, I pray that you would bless them today and that more churches will be planted as the gospel continues to spread. And then God, we ask you to bless our time as we gather together today. It is a privilege and an honor to be together with the people of God, to sing words of worship to you. And now to hear the preached word, God, we pray that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. Help us, God, to see the truth that you have, because this story that we're going to see today, I really do believe it is such a helpful story for where we are in this current cultural moment. And so, God, I pray that you would use it to help us know how to live better. And then, God, I pray that you would help me to preach it in a way that obviously, first and foremost, glorifies you, honors you, and then is helpful to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got a Bible, uh, whether that is your phone or in a book form, we are going to be, we're literally one verse in John chapter 7, and then we're into John chapter 8. And so we'll actually finish out John chapter 8 this year. But this story that we're going to see today is a rather famous story. Uh, in fact, if you've been around church uh, any in your life, you probably have heard this story or bits and pieces of the story, even if you weren't around church, because it is kind of just one of those stories that is just kind of stuck uh, generationally that people just kind of know about. But it's a story, interestingly enough, before we get into it, that I want to say to you, uh, because in your Bible, uh, depending upon what translation you have, I always teach out of the ESV, it's actually bracketed. And there will be a footnote or a statement that says that this story wasn't in the early manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. So I want to address that real quickly before we actually get into the story, 
One, because I want you to know how to handle this if somebody uses this as a criticism of why they can't trust the Bible. But two, I'm gonna show you why it is here and why it is bracketed the way that it is. Now, how we got our Bibles, it actually was pulled together in what we call the canon, which is the 66 books of the Bible, particularly the parts in the New Testament, was pulled together in about the fifth century. And then from that point forward, we had uh, what we know today as the Bible. Because you have to remember, Jesus was living right in the first century, and he lived for 33 years. And then all the people that he, uh, all his disciples and followers who wrote books, wrote those within their lifetime. And, and it was about, you know, depending upon the author, 30 or 40 years within the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that they wrote these. A lot of times they were letters to churches or letters to specific groups of people that existed in a certain area, reminding them of what Jesus did. And the reason being, is you have to remember back then, they didn't have printing presses. They didn't have print. Like we forget, like having a printer in our home is like a technological marvel. Like it's crazy. I mean, it's so common to us now, um, but they didn't have that then. They didn't have copiers. They had humans. They had scribes who would write them down. And they lived in, in what we call an oral culture. And so they told the stories. But then when those people start dying off, I'm like, well, we got to write these stories down so that future generations will know what happened. And so that's why they wrote them down. And, and the criteria for putting, there was other letters that were written that are not in your Bible. And that's called the Apocrypha, which there's other books that sometimes get quoted. But there was criteria that had to be met in order for it to be considered in a part of your Bible. One, it had to be an eyewitness to Jesus, had to live when he was there. You saw these things happen. You didn't get it secondhand. And so all those things were criteria of what we had. And, and then those letters were literally copied. And so when Paul's writing a letter to a church, he can't email it to them or snail mail it to them. It was literally like, write it down, copy it, and then you copy it to the next uh, church so that they can read it. And in those manuscripts, literally, we have thousands of them. And people who like to criticize the Bible as you can't be trusted, historically speaking, we have way more manuscripts of the Bible of any other book, and it's not even close. Like Iliad, Odyssey, other historical books, we have like seven, eight copies. The Bible, we have over 5,000. So it's just not even close. And we have all these copies that we can compare and the general rule of thumb is the older the copy, the better, because that means it was written before this person, you know, copied what this person wrote. And so we have all these copies and in the earliest manuscripts dating closer to the time of Jesus, this story was not in there. Now you say, well, why is that? Well, it might be that when John was writing this, he didn't think that this story was necessary to tell us about who Jesus is. If you remember in John chapter 20, the purpose of this gospel, which I did at the beginning and I come back to often, John said this, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book, but these were written so that you'll believe. So there was things that Jesus did that aren't written in the Bible which is gonna be amazing when we get to heaven and we get to ask, what are those things? What are other things that happen that we just don't know about because it wasn't handed down to us in this book? So what I think happened and what most scholars think happened is John didn't include that early 
But when scribes were writing, they would never, ever, ever take away from the text because they knew this was sacred, holy text. We're not going to take away from what someone wrote, but they might add to. They might add a comma or they might add an explanation. Like I told you, when Jesus, uh, John was quoting Jesus, he told us that it was about the spirit. Jesus didn't say that. John put that in there to help us understand what Jesus was saying. So what most scholars believe is this story did actually happen, that this story happened because it has all the same markers. It sounds like Jesus. It took place in a place where Jesus was in an event and in a way that Jesus had other similar experiences. But I just want to point it out to you because people might use this to say, see, you can't even trust the Bible. Well, you can trust it again, because we have way more copies than any other book, but you can also trust it because they pointed out to you, hey, this wasn't in the earlier manuscript, so we're not trying to hide anything from you, but we want you to know this story because this story, I think the reason why it's put here helps give a description to something that Jesus said earlier that I actually touched on a few weeks ago when Jesus said to judge with right judgment. So I think this story is an example of something that happened with Jesus that explains that point. And so they added it in at this point in time to help explain the truth that Jesus was saying, all right? So that's why it's bracketed in your Bible. Now let's get into the actual story. Another thing that's interesting to me, and I told you this often, the verse numbers weren't there in the beginning. They were added later too. And it's interesting to me that they put verse 53 of chapter seven, like this one little part, and then chapter eight starts with the incomplete sentence, like it's a part of a sentence. I don't know why they do that stuff. Like, just put it in chapter eight, bro. Uh, again, I wasn't the monk who did this, all right? But John chapter seven, verse 53, it says this, they, each, they went each to his own house, chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So again, let's talk setting, context here. If you've been here over the last several weeks, we've talked about how Jesus was at this festival. He was in Jerusalem at this festival for the festival of booths or tabernacles. They would come and stay in tents. Now it's eight days. They've, they've gone through the seven days. On the eighth day, they would go home. And so now they're each going to their house. They're returning back to where they lived. But it says this, and, and this isn't the main point of the sermon. This is kind of a sub point. All right, this is a freebie. You're getting a two for one. Blue light special. Any Kmart fans out there, all right? <clears throat> which I used to work at Kmart, and they fired me. I think that's why they've gone downhill since then, all right? It's a true story. But it says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So here's the sub point. Here's the freebie. Jesus had habits, or what Luke 22 calls customs. And I just want to point out to you what his habits were, what his customs were, because not only was Jesus our savior, but he was our example. So we should live how he lived. And there's two things that he did here in this verse that I want to point out that we should develop as personal habits as well. One, he went away to be with God alone. He went away to be with God to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is significant. If you have a chance to go to Israel, it's on the east side and it was a wilderness then. In fact, there's a huge Jew, uh, Jewish cemetery there because that's where they would be buried because you were buried outside the city gate. 
And the Temple Mount itself, where the Holy of Holies is, looks out to the east, and Jesus went there often to pray and be with God. In fact, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where Jesus prayed the night before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed, and he was literally sweating drops of blood. So he went to the place he had always went. And this is a hugely significant geographical place. In fact, Old Testament prophecies say Jesus will return and come back to that place. And, and some people believe, and I tend to be one of them, that Jesus was actually crucified on that place because that is where he went often. So he developed a custom where he would go to be alone with God. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that Jesus was more concerned about developing his private life than he was his public life. And I'm pointing out to you, this is how you do it. So here's a custom that you and I should adopt. We should develop the habit of going away and being with God. Now, in our con, uh, kind of modern American context, the idea of getting away is what we would call vacation. You know, and that's Disney World or that's, you know, going to the beach or going to the mountains, which we all do. And that's fine. I'm not opposed to any of that. You should do. It does kind of make me laugh, though especially like on our fall breaks or spring breaks, like the entire state of Georgia goes to Florida. Like every license plate in Florida is Georgia. And like you're going to get away, but it was all your friends that you just left with, right? So you're really not away. It's like, hey, all you friends from Georgia, right? And then you got like Apple festivals up here in Georgia and all the license plates are Florida people, right? And they're all coming up and eating the apples and enjoying, which is great. But when I'm talking about getting away, I'm not talking about that. Because if you haven't realized now yet, you will, you need a vacation from your vacations. The problem is we live with no margin and we think one week at the beach will do it for us. It won't. So we're asking too much of Mickey. Let's be straight. That ain't a vacation. <laughs> that is a job, right? We're asking too much because we're not living our lives with margins where we are getting away daily and being quiet with Jesus. And, and I'm telling you, this is a struggle for me. In fact, years ago, when Lindsay and I were talking, she was like, you know, when, before you come home, you need to be quiet. Like, just be in the truck, don't listen to radio, don't listen, because when you get home, it's gonna be noisy, and I need you, right? So I had to develop, learn how to develop the discipline, and it's still tough for me, because if I'm in a car or on a plane, I want headphones in, listening to something. I'm a learner, I just love learning. This is why I have like 75 books that I've read two chapters of, right? Like, I feel like someone should throw me a party when I actually finish one of them jokers. I just love learning. But what I have realized, and, and God has taught me, and I've listened, a better way to say it is, if I'm, if I'm filling my brain with everybody else's voice, then it's really hard to hear his. So Jesus had a habit of going away being alone with God. And that is something we should do daily and then weekly and then monthly and then figure out a rhythm. But there's a second thing that he did that I also want to point out is after that time alone, he came back to the temple to be with the people of God, to teach. And people were gathering publicly to listen to him teach. So a second habit that we need to develop, which those of you that are here understand, is weekly gathering together with the people of God. Now, hope, uh, COVID has disrupted a lot of that. And, and we're about 75% back in attendance at what we were 
pre-COVID, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and people are watching online, and I'm, I'm great with online, and people still have health issues. I, I completely understand all of that. But what I'm saying is, don't use that as an excuse to get out of the habit of gathering together. Which is funny, because we'll have conversations with some people, and they were like, eh, we haven't come back to church yet, well, but you're going to school. I, I just saw you at the football game Friday night. Saw you at the basketball game. Yeah, but we're scared of large crowds. Well, this doesn't make any sense. Right? So, again, I'm not being mean, not ragging on if you're watching online. Good to see you next week in person, all right? <laughs> but my point is simply this. If you get, watch this, if you get out of the habits of holiness, you will not be as holy. That's what I'm trying to say. Two big habits. Get alone and gather. Hebrews 10 says, do not neglect gathering together. Watch this. As some are in the habit of doing. So my time with the Lord is about me. My time with others is about him and them. So I get filled up to pour myself out. That's what this is about. So Jesus had that habit, all right? Side point, let's get into the rest of the story. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And this is, and you're like, oh really? How was she caught? Verse five and six. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, there's the story. So the story, again, is a rather famous one where Jesus is teaching, and the religious leaders dragged this woman in who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in my two decades plus of ministry, I have had to deal with some distractions in teaching. I mean, I talked to teenagers for almost a decade. I mean, that was just constant. I would say, listen, listen, li like literally like 55 times in a message, listen, listen, listen. And there were times where I would just call teenagers out, hey, if you're gonna talk, you might as well just leave. You know, sometimes you gotta come correct with people. And so there would be distractions like that. And, and it's funny, when I was interviewing here at Revolution, uh, they asked me, like, hey, you spoke to teenagers. How can you speak to adults? And I'm like, oh, speaking to adults is easy. They may not be listening, but at least they act like it. <laughs> teenagers will let you know. You cut your teeth on speaking to teenagers, you can speak to anybody. They'll just check out and be like, that's horrible. And they would talk back to me, right? So I had to, like, really preach it. And, and I've had, again, distractions. I have had, uh, in this church, I've had people stand up and talk to me during a message, a drunk guy one time, standing up and talking to me. And so I was like, uh, if you're gonna go there, bro, let's go. He was sitting right over here. And so no more drunk people over here, all right? <laughs> so I just started talking to him. I mean, I have, I have dealt with some distractions. I've had, I mean, I've spoken other countries and other languages. I mean, it's just been crazy. But I have never had this happen. And I can't fathom it. Like just, I mean, again, I'm gonna describe it to you. Just picture this scene. And, and on the Temple Mount, you have to know, again, it's, it's rather large. It's, I mean, just think like the size of a football field. That's the size of the Temple Mount. And on one end was the Holy of Holies, which is not there now. There's actually an Islamic mosque they built right where they thought that was, which is ironic. But then on the other side, there's all this like just kind of open space 
where they would come and gather. And there's kind of vestibules all on the sides and they would come and hang out and teachers would teach and they would interact. I mean, it's kind of like the lobbies of our churches um, that some people used to call a narthex. I don't know where the heck that word came from. Um, apparently it's a Northern thing. I'm like, Southerners, we, oh, narthex sounds like a mystical animal. We don't know, uh, you know. Um, but it was a gathering place. So here's Jesus, he's teaching, a crowd gathers, they're listening to him, and then, I mean, just imagine in this room, I'm sitting here teaching, you're listening, the back doors bust open, a mob of people comes in, dragging a woman who had been caught in adultery, more than likely not fully clothed, we don't know if she's kicking or screaming, just imagine the commotion that would happen. Everybody's looking around and like, what in the world is going on? And Jesus is teaching. Then they yell to Jesus, Jesus, teacher, the law of Moses says we should stone this woman, which they have stones in their hands, ready to chunk them at her. So you get the, you get the tension in the room even though it was open air. I mean, you get the tension in the place. I mean, it's like a tennis match and it volleys back and forth and I'll show you even more. Like They're looking at Jesus and all of a sudden, bam, these people come in. What in the world is going on? And then they ask Jesus, bam, Jesus, what are you gonna do? And what does Jesus do? Right on the ground. And this is when you got to think the religious teachers are, teachers are like, what is this cat doing? And all the, all the people that are listening to Jesus, they were like, there's a naked woman here and you're playing in the dirt? What are you doing? And, and I'm going to show you what I think he's doing the significance of what I think he's doing. And I want to let you know, this is my opinion. I could be wrong. As I tell my wife, I'm not normally wrong. It was a joke for those of you that laughed. Because all the men in the room were like, you for real say that? <clears throat> I say it to my staff, not to my wife. All right. But here's what I think he's doing. And I'll show you the significance of why I think he's doing it. But remember where he is. He's on the temple mound. Now the temple mound, to this day still, is built out of stones. In fact, what's crazy is Jesus prophesied that these stones would be thrown off. And they have now dug down far enough where you can actually see the stones on the southeast corner that the Romans threw off. I mean, and I'm talking, when I say stones, I'm not talking river stones. I'm talking like boulders, like size of your car kind of stones. So Jesus bends down and watch, wrote with his finger, on stone. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger 
on stone. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, that should bring to your mind another time where God wrote with his finger on stone. If you don't remember, I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And he, God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. Now listen to this. Tablets of what? Stone written with the what? Finger of God. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. What did Jesus bend down and write on? Stone. With what? His finger. You see the significance? Who are they quoting to Jesus? The law of Moses. They're quoting the law of Moses to Jesus and saying, teacher, the law of Moses says we are to stone such women. And the first thing that I think Jesus does when he bends down and writes with his finger on stone is he's saying, you don't know that I know that the law was written because I wrote it. That was my finger who wrote on that stone, who gave those tablets to Moses, who you're quoting, because it's not the law of Moses, it's the law of God, written by God with his finger on tablets of stone, given to Moses. I know the law. I think Jesus is saying that in one motion, by bending down and writing with his finger on stone. He's like, I know what the law says, jokers. But I think there's another thing that he's saying symbolically by bending down and writing with his finger on stones. Someone greater than the law is here. You see, watch this. They claim to love the law, but they didn't love the lawgiver. And watch this. And they didn't love what the lawgiver loved, which was people. How do we know that? They don't love the law. How do we know they don't love the law? Because they didn't say it correctly. Nowhere in the law of Moses does it say, stone the woman. Nowhere. You want to know what it does say? If a man and a woman are caught in the act of adultery, stone both of them. So anybody who's well-versed in the law is like, hold up, where's the dude? Where's the man? And, and, and this is where I want to know, like, and how did you catch him? Like, did you set this woman up? Some guy's like, I'll volunteer for that. How, how did you know? Where is he? Was it one of them? They don't care about the law. They don't love the law. They are manipulating the law for their own purposes because he tells us they were just trying to catch Jesus. Second thing, they don't love this woman. They're using this woman. Probably even more so than the guy that she was having an affair with that was using her. 
They are manipulating her for their own political purposes. And I think Jesus, by writing on the ground, is saying, I know the law. I wrote it. You're abusing it. And number two, there's something greater than the law that's here, and that's the law giver. And this is why Jesus could say things like this, a new law I give you. How could he give a new law? Because he's the same one who gave the old law. And his new law, he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So watch this. Jesus did not do away with the old law. He fulfilled it and he upped it. He upped it because the law at the end of the day is ultimately about love in two directions of God and others. And they're completely misusing it. They don't love the law. They don't love God. And they for sure don't love this woman. But the story continues. Look at this. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> I don't want to be disrespectful, but what a boss move. I mean, for real, who does this? I mean, this whole scene, drag this woman in, causing a commotion. Jesus is like, And this is one of the questions I have for Jesus when we get there. Like, what did you write? Just tell, just tell me, what was it? They keep hounding him. He stands up and he says, let you who are without sin cast the first stone. Then he bends back down. Imagine it. And what does the crowd do? Look, the Bible tells us. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. And this next line just makes me laugh, beginning with the older ones. Why is that? Because the younger ones were dumber. <laughs> For real. Why do you think the Bible would tell you that? And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So here's Jesus, bends down, writes on the ground, stands up, says that, bends down again. And this is the volley match, right? The crowd's like, there they are. There's Jesus. There they are. There's Jesus. Oh, what are they going to do? Right? And just imagine the scene. Here's the crowd, stones in their hand. They're like, Uh, didn't expect that. Uh, not how we planned it. What are we, we going to do? What do we do now? And I love it. It says, one by one they left, beginning with the older ones. Because the older ones, watch this, are supposed to have wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied which means a 40-year-old shouldn't act like a 20-year-old. If you're 40 acting like you're 20, you are not wise. You are a, what the Bible would call a fool. 
Now, if you're 60, acting like you're 40, 68, the new 40, it's 60. And if anything, what I've realized is 9 p.m. is the new midnight. Right? Past 9 p.m., I'm like, that's what wise people have figured out, how to take naps. Right? And now if you're young, I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying, listen to older people. The Bible says, walk with the wise and you will grow wise. So if you're dumb, you ain't walking with wise folk. Simple, right? I just love how the Bible points that out. The older ones left first and then all the young ones. Guess we leave too. Which, side note, if you're older here and all you do is complain about the younger generation being unwise, then why won't you mentor them? Serve and rev kids and rev students and help the next generation so that your wisdom doesn't die with you. If it dies with you, you didn't leave a legacy. We'll get into that later. But now Jesus is left alone with the woman. And now... What we're going to see in this whole point of this whole story is how Jesus interacts with this woman. Because that's all that matters. Look at this, verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a response. Two things I want to show you here. With the crowd, Jesus stood up for truth. He would not let them manipulate the truth. And with the woman, he stood up for grace. With the crowd, truth. With the woman, grace. He stands up twice. And what I want to show you is Jesus was full of both. He was not half grace, half truth. He was all grace, all truth. He was not half God and half man. He was all God, all man. And truth is not opposed to grace. And grace is not opposed to truth. Because in the man of Jesus, we see both fully. And let me point out to you what I mean. First, he asks her a question. Where are they? Where are they? See, when it comes to truth, who we listen, whose words we listen to most is what defines us. And this crowd's words were defining this woman. Just imagine what they were thinking of her, what the religious people were saying about her. She was caught in the act of adultery. But the first question, and I, I don't think it was an accident. Jesus says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. Church, it does not matter what they say about you. 
we all have a they. You know who they are, right? Them, those people. We all have a they, a people that would try to condemn us. I mean, being a teenager was hard enough, but you add in now all the opinions of the world through social media on teenagers, and no wonder our kids are going insane and anxious because their they just expanded from a local group to a global one. Their they just got bigger. And if we're not careful, we're raising a generation of kids on the opinion of they. What do they think? So many people, we call it today, are afraid to get canceled or somehow labeled as a public pariah. Don't touch this person. I just want to point out to you, Jesus is not afraid of they, and he will engage with anyone. Because here's the truth. At the end of your life, it will be you and Jesus, and that's it. You will stand before Jesus yourself and give an account. There will be no they. There will be no they. So let me ask you this question. If I'm going to stand at the end of my life and face Jesus, then I better care about what he thinks over what they think. You with me? I better not live my life on the opinion of they's. Because all the people I went to high school with, I mean, I don't hang with them now anyway. And whew, you should have seen them at my 20th. Right? I mean, goodness, look at me. I have to remind my kids all the time I was voted most handsome in high school. Because they, they were like, oh, that must have been a bad high school. <laughs> some, woo, some East Texas. Mm. But think of, I mean, my whole world, though, in that time revolved around the opinions of them. And then you go to college and your world expands a little bit. And then you get a job and your world expands a little bit. And you, as you get older, you get wiser and you realize they just don't matter. So let me say it on the flip side. Why in the world would I let them pressure me to do something that goes against him? Why would I let them? Well, he won't like me. <laughs> Who cares about him? Well, he'll say bad stuff about me. We only got two more years and then he's a no one to you. Well, they won't, well, they, uh, where are they? Where are they? It's only the opinion of Jesus. Secondly, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, you need to understand the word Condemn means to declare guilty. And not just to declare guilty, but also punitively to provide judgment. Like, you're guilty, here's your judgment. You did this, you go to jail. That's condemning. 
And that is what the crowd wanted. They wanted to declare her guilty and kill her. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. Now, I'll get into more in just a minute how he could say that. Because she was guilty, but he didn't condemn her. And here's what we can take away from that. Church, hear me. You do not have the spiritual gift of condemnation. It is not in the list. It is not the job of Christians or the church to condemn. That ain't my job. There is one judge, and his name is Jesus. It is his job to declare guilty or free. And he will make that judgment person by person at the end of the age. But far too many Christians are walking around with the ministry of condemnation. Saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. I mean, don't we see this when we go to games and people are holding up signs and saying all these groups of people going to hell? Which I've engaged with some of those people. Now I just give up because it's pointless. But I've engaged with some of them and I've said, hold on, why are you doing this? Well, because they need to know. Well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever hold up signs like this? Answer, no. Here's what amazes me. How Christians are doing things for Jesus in ways that Jesus never did. You're like, Pastor, are you saying those people holding up signs condemning people are wrong? Yes, I am. You want to know why? Because without Jesus, they stand condemned too. They are not without sin. And, and, and how wicked does a human heart have to be to think that it is my job to throw stones at everybody? See, the, the Bible calls us as living stones, and it amazes me how people with such fervor won't build the stones of the church, but they'll throw them at sinners. That is not our job. And, and church, listen to me. Christians and the church has done a horrible job over the centuries of condemning people. And, and when we walk around with such arrogant pridefulness that says your sin deserves condemnation, but my sin deserves grace. We don't understand grace. It amazes me how people have time to get on social media and point out everybody else's sins. I'm like, how do you have time to do that? I'm just over here trying to defeat mine. I ain't got no time to point out somebody else's. And I see this in church. And I say this often, that's why we did the series, Welcome to Our Family. If you want to join our family, you go through Welcome Track. We'll help you understand how we do things as a family. And I want you to hear me. We don't do that here. I do not want a bunch of revolution, our family people walking around with stones looking for people to throw them at. 
is that it's not what Jesus did. He engaged sinners. In fact, one of the titles that the Bible has for him that is my favorite is friend of what? Anybody know? Sinners. So put your rocks down and grab a towel and serve. Jesus didn't walk around condemning. Neither should we. And for those that have been hurt by the actions of the church, by publicly condemning and shaming, that's wrong. And we do our best not to do that here. But there's one last thing that Jesus did that I also want to point out. He said to her, and from now on, sin no more. Don't miss this. He did call what she did sin. He did. The Bible has what we would call a biblical ethic. And what I mean by that is this. If you've ever studied ethics, and it's interesting now, it's been a minute since I was in college, but I took classes on ethics and philosophy. Ethics is something that doesn't change. It's immutable. It's true. But we live in a world today that says, what is ethics? Ethics is in the eye of the beholder, just like beauty is. So ethics is what I say it is. And I want you to hear me say that. You're wrong. The Bible does have a biblical ethic of what marriage is, of how to do sex, of how to do money, of how to do human relationships, everything that you need for life and godliness, the Bible explains to you. Notice Jesus, he didn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her behavior either. And if you wanna take notes, here is the point of my message. We don't condemn, but we don't condone. We don't condemn people just walking around telling everybody how they're going to die and burn in hell. But we don't condone behavior either. And this is where, watch me, Christians go wrong on one of two ways. I say this to you often, either side of the road is a ditch. So there's two ways to be wrong. For every one mile of truth, there's two miles of lies. And historically speaking, a lot of Christians have been over here in the more condemnation ditch. Standing up for truth. Now, I applaud the heart to want to stand up for truth, but I don't, apply, I don't applaud the heart that has no grace. But then in this ditch over here, you have Christians now, which is more prevalent today, that say, oh, I'm all grace. Who am I to tell them that what they're doing is sin? And I want you to hear me, church. Grace is not permission. It's not permission. It is power to do what's right, not permission to do what's wrong. Jesus did not say to her, I don't condemn you, 
Now go and keep doing what you were doing. He said, no. Sin no more. And culture will try to pull us into one of two ditches. And one ditch will sound more Republican and one ditch will sound more Democrat. And this is when you're like, well, pastor, which one are you? Neither. Because I don't care about being in the right ditch or the left ditch or the Republican ditch or the Democrat ditch because the gospel doesn't fit nicely in either one of them. The gospel is above them and critiques all of them. I do not care, watch this, I can't tell you how many people have left churches over their political views, but I don't see very many Christians leaving their political views over churches. And I want you to know, we are not called to condemn. Yes, we are called to speak up for truth, but we are called to also grace and engage people. And why I have found is cold-hearted Christians just want to be right. They don't want relationships with anybody. And if that's your stance, you're wrong because it wasn't Jesus's. I should never use truth as a bat to beat someone with, but I should never use grace as permission to let people do what they want. It's neither. The gospel doesn't fit in either. We don't condemn, we don't condone. Now you say, where do you get this, pastor? Let me give you the last few verses. Romans chapter eight, verse one through four. I think Paul got his theology from Jesus. And I think this story fits amazingly well in these four verses. Let me read them to you. There is therefore now no, what's that next word there? Come on, say it with me. There is now therefore no what? Condemnation. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now listen to this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, what's that next word there? Let me say it again. He what? Condemned what? Sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that people would not be condemned. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let me show you how those fit. Jesus could look at that woman caught in the very act and say to her, I don't condemn you because he knew he was taking her condemnation for her. He knew he was going to die on the cross as an adulterer. He knew that he was going to take the just penalty for her sin. See, she deserved it. She deserved the guilt. She deserved the shame. She deserved the punishment. And this is where people want to do away with the wrath of God like God ain't mad at sin. Listen, telling people God is not mad at sin is not loving them. Because if you take away the wrath, then you take away the beauty of the cross. God has to punish sin, but the good news is he punished Christ. 
He condemned sin. So if you walked in here today condemned, you can leave today free because Jesus took your condemnation on the cross. He could say to that woman, I don't condemn you because he knew in his body he was taking her condemnation. And then it says in verse four, in order that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us, those who live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So I dealt with the condemnation part. Let me deal with the condoning part. See, there's an argument today, and, and if you have paid attention at all, you've heard it, that people say things like this, well, I was born this way. This is what's natural to me. God wouldn't make me this way with these desires. And what people fail to understand is we are all born broken. We are all born sinful. So of course, we have what the Bible calls flesh. And my flesh is opposed to God. Now, I come from an alcoholic family. So I'm fine with the idea that I'm predisposed to that. My mom also loved Rocky Road. I'm predisposed to that, straight up, for real. Like Bluebell, <clears throat> which was also made in Texas. So we got Bluebell out here. We got Bucky's now. We're getting Whataburger. Georgia's becoming more like heaven. I'm predisposed to that. Listen to me. You can't choose your temptation, but you can choose your response to it. And, and this, this idea of I'm born this way and my natural desires is to do these things, that ethic and logic falls apart. Listen to me. If we apply it in other circumstances. What if I'm born with propensity to anger? Are we all cool with me walking around and punching everybody I see? And you're saying, why are you punching me? You're like, bro, I'm born this way. You just have to accept me. You want to live in that world? No, it's crazy logic. It's anti-God. Watch this. Because it doesn't allow for the spirit of God to give us new desires. See, I no longer walk according to my flesh. And listen, my flesh wants to sin. And the idea that I can just give in to my flesh doesn't work. It, I'm, if we go on feelings, what if I feel like I should kill you? I feel like I should take advantage of you. You, you want to live there? That's crazy. And so the gospel, listen, the gospel is not just that he took our condemnation. That's half of it. The rest of it is, and now, because he took it, the spirit of God lives within me and I have been born again. And the new me has new desires. And I walk according to the spirit not according to the flesh. 
So a theology that says, well, I feel it, so I do it, denies the power of the Spirit. And I want to help you, church. I mean, don't you see how this is like applicable right now to where we live? We can't condemn people, but we can't condone behavior that goes outside of the biblical ethic, which sexually speaking is one man, one woman in marriage for life. Anything outside of that is sin. You don't have to like it, but that's the truth. Anything else outside of that falls on the weight of its own argument. And I'm just pointing it out to you. That's how Jesus engaged a sinful woman. That's how we must engage a sinful world. Watch this, full of truth and full of grace. So if you're a Christian walking around looking to stone people, get on with your bad self, you're wrong. But if you're a Christian walking around just saying, I'm looking to love and not truth, then you misunderstand what love is. Love is not lying. You're like, well, that's really hard. I know. And it was really hard for Jesus to die. And it's really hard for the spirit to get in and change us. But by grace, by grace, we can walk this road. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I know a message like this hits home in so many different ways. Because it, it really flies in the face of what has been church culture, which, God forgive us for being such arrogant hypocrites and acting like we didn't sin too. But it also flies against modern culture that has redefined every biblical ethic that we had. We are a peculiar people who don't fit in either place. But God, by your grace, I pray that we would walk this road like Jesus did, full of truth and grace. And for those that are here today, God, that have felt condemned not by the world, but by their own heart, who have felt sin and shame over what they've done. God, I pray right now that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to their heart and tell them that you took that condemnation on the cross, that they don't have to leave here today condemned for sin that they did or sin that was done to them. They are not guilty because Christ was declared guilty they can walk out free. And for those, God, who haven't trusted in him right now, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth and save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never seen that he took your condemnation and he condemned it in his own body so that you could be set free and have the power to live a new life, and today you can be saved. And you can pray with me if you wanna trust Jesus. You don't have to do it out loud. And it goes like this. Say, Father, 
Thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place for my sin. He took my condemnation on the cross and gave me his righteousness. And I receive it today. I ask you to save me. Forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Now, if you are in one of our physical locations and you just prayed that with me, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Thank you. We've got men and women are gonna walk around and put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. In just a moment, you have an opportunity to fill out our digital connection card and let us know who you are. And those of us who have trusted Christ, two things. If you've been walking around with a critical spirit, just seeking to point out the wrongs of others, I wanna remind you that is not a spiritual gift. You need to repent. Because you too have sinned. And I pray that you would act more gracefully. But two, for those of you that thought that grace was permission, I pray that you would repent and be reminded that grace is power. It's the power of God to do right, not permission to do wrong. And it will cost you to stand up for truth. They will not like it. But remember, there will be a day where God will say to you, where are they? So you stand up for truth in the most gracious way that you can. Father, this message is so timely to us because we live in a, mess, in a world that is trying to push us, categorize us as just hateful, Or we go the other way and we think that we have to go light on truth. But God, I pray that you would help us see Jesus was full of both. And yes, it did cost him his life. And so it might cost us things too. But God, I pray that we would do it with such conviction and courage, knowing that one day you will say, where are they? But God, I pray that we would do it in a loving way. We would engage people with grace because we care about their souls, not because we're trying to make a point. And so Father, I pray that we would live this kind of life. It is hard, it is tough, but we can't do it without your spirit. So empower us in Jesus' name, amen.